Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. Today, well, we have something a little bit different. Today, Lewis and Ann are speaking with Ronan Levy, co-founder of Field Trip Ventures, a first-of-its-kind venture that is blending operational execution with strategic investing across all aspects of the psychedelics value chain, from basic research on botanical psychedelics to the operation of world-class clinics focused on psychedelic-assisted therapies. The war on drugs, which began in the early 1970s under the Nixon administration, targeted not only cannabis, but everything from psilocybin and LSD to DMT and other molecules that have since been proven to have therapeutic value. Definitely do not sit back for this one. Now on to our conversation with Ronan Levy. Oh my God, we're like inches, foot apart. It's, it's very inches. weird. It's, it feels, it, it, it's kind of cool. And you know, it's nice to do this with you face to face. It is so rare. The last time I think we did it was a hostful and it might have actually been in Las Vegas. No, it was at Benzenga at the event oh, we right. shall not, at the, the podcast we shall not, that shall not be named. Yes, because we recorded seven interviews and none of them turned out. <laughs> Which, um, which, again, my fault, but lessons learned. Shit happens, moving on. Yes. Um, so the, You're the, excited for this one. I am very excited for this one. Um, I, we are going to be talking with a guy named Ronan Levy, who is the co-founder of an organization, a company called Field Trip Ventures. Um, and we are taking, I wouldn't call it a left turn away from cannabis, oh, but we are... That's what I called it. Well, I don't know you, why. I just It is what it is. We're taking a step away from cannabis to talk about another budding, no pun intended, industry that is having, you know, a moment, which is the psychedelic or entheogen industry. Um, I, I got interested in this personally because I read Michael Pollan. Actually, I got interested in this personally because I heard Mike Tyson's interview on Joe Rogan. And then we went out or I went out and got a chance to meet him. Um, you know, and, and Mike's, if you didn't listen to that episode, we'll put a link to it actually in the show notes. But, you know, Mike changed dramatically because of his experience with some psychedelic compounds. Um, and, and, and Nick, our, uh, our producer, found this company in a story in Business Insider. Oh, I didn't think I knew that. Yeah, he, he found Good this job, company. And sent me the link to the story, and I immediately reached out to to them to say, guys, I want to work with you. I want to help normalize the conversation around psychedelics because there is a mental health crisis that's taking place in our country. And these are the only compounds that are doing anything to help. So I'm, I'm excited about this. I'm very excited about this. I can tell. <laughs> yes, I'm no, I'm super excited too. I it's it's always interesting learning new things, and um, we hope that this episode um, answers some questions. But I think it's going to be a continuous dialogue. I think um, I, I think that there it is a slight turn from cannabis, but not a completely separate 
Especially given his background, you know, you know, Ronan's right. background coming out of the cannabis industry and taking the, actually taking the money that he made in cannabis and now is applying it to this whole new industry. And, you know, there is an argument that cannabis is a $75 billion industry that is being converted from the illicit to the regulated and taxed market. Psychedelics is not that because it is not a conversion industry. But the mental health industry is a $150 billion a year annual industry. And it just doesn't work. So, you know, the, these, these compounds have years, decades of research behind them showing that they do work. And now it's time for us, and I don't just mean you and I, but us as a society, to look at other ways to treat mental health. So that's I my soapbox. I think you guys are going to like it. So I let us so. know what you think. And now on to our conversation with Ronan Levy from Field Trip Ventures. Hey Ronan, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. I, I, you know, I have wanted to to work with you guys and to have this conversation for a long time, and I have a really a, a feeling that this is going to be a really fascinating conversation. So, let's jump right in. What is Field Trip Ventures? What do you, what do you guys do? So Field Trip Ventures is, as far as I know, the first, world's first true venture in legal psychedelics. Um, Unlike companies like Compass Pathways that is taking a sort of pharmaceutical approach to using psychedelics to drug development, uh, we are taking approach much more consistent with what you've seen with the big cannabis operators, which is investing in cultivation, investing in research uh, on the plants, uh, building clinics, really going cross-platform in all aspects of psychedelics, um, and doing so in, in a federally legal way. Uh, everything we're going to be doing is consistent with laws, and, and we'll do it step-by-step step to make sure uh, we stay compliant with all laws as we advance you know, uh, our mission, which is advancing the, the science and understanding of therapeutic psychedelics. So most of our listeners, um, I mean, this is a cannabis podcast, so they they know of these drugs by, you know, which they've they've heard these names on the streets like Molly or or ecstasy. But can you explain in layman's terms what an entheo- entheogen? Am I even saying that right? Is and describe, you know, entheogen, yeah. entheogen and, and how these drugs are are actually helping people. Sure. Yeah. So entheogens uh, is, you know, there's a couple of terms that are overlapping, not necessarily identical, but entheogens, uh, psychedelics, they generally refer to the same category of drugs, of molecules. Entheogens are are typically molecules that result in a spirit virtual experience uh, or, you know, a religious experience. Psychedelics as a term is more about mind manifestation, but that's really getting into the etymology of the terms. Uh, You know, overall, uh, psychedelics or entheogens are molecules that help break down, uh, in in psychology terms, the ego, so people can perceive the world in a different way. Um, In some respects, cannabis could be seen as an entheogen. If you take enough cannabis, then, you know, in theory, you could have a spiritual uh, experience, and therefore it's an entheogen, or you could have, in theory, a a psychedelic or more accurately a hallucinogenic experience, uh, but it's typically not classed in the same category. Cannabis is typically separate. Uh, entheogens or psychedelics, at least conventionally, the classic ones are LSD, uh, psilocybin mushrooms, DMT, and MDMA is often included in, in, as well, but it's also a little bit outside of the more traditional classic so, psychedelic drugs. As Anne mentioned, we we are a, a, a cannabis podcast, and this is 
you know, the first time that we are talking about a medical set of treatments that go beyond cannabis and, and, um, but your background is cannabis, right? You were one of the early members of Aurora. Can you, can you talk a little bit about your experience there and that how you decided to make the leap from, um, from cannabis to psychedelics? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, my, my experience with cannabis starts uh, before joining Aurora. Uh, people, it's interesting, people refer to me as, as a pioneer and, and my business partners as pioneers in the cannabis industry. I think that's a, that's a stretch. There's a lot of people who did a lot of incredible work before we got involved. Uh, our background was we started uh, a company called Canadian Cannabis Clinics and a sister company called Canvas RX. Um, uh, Canadian Cannabis Clinics grew has grown to become the largest network of cannabis specialized medical clinics, I think, anywhere in the world, uh, but certainly in Canada. Uh, Canvas RX, our sister platform, uh, which provided the kind of education and technology backbone for Canadian Cannabis Clinics, was acquired by Aurora in 2016. Uh, and we spent a couple of years running corporate development and helping Aurora grow from you know, a relatively small publicly traded company in Canada to what it is now, which is a multi-billion dollar New York Stock Exchange listed company. We left about a year ago uh, and we delved into psychedelics. And, and the reason we did so was uh, we just saw a lot of the parallels between cannabis and, and psychedelics, uh, which, you know, on, on, on many levels, you know, the, the basic three I typically identify were that there was growing medical acceptance of the therapeutic value, uh, there was a growing grassroots support movement, and there's a low risk of harm associated with the use of psychedelics, which in many ways mirrors exactly what it was like with cannabis, you know, uh, over the last, call it 20 years, but much more relevantly over the last seven or eight years. Uh, and as we started digging into psychedelics, one of the things that we kept coming back to was, uh, you know, from our experience with cannabis was just how profound an impact cannabis had on the lives of our patients. Um, you know, I think when we went in, all of us, we were, we were pretty agnostic with respect to cannabis. We were certainly on a political perspective of the view that it didn't make sense to criminalize possession or use of cannabis, but I don't think any of us would be considered activists or advocates uh, for cannabis in terms of our own personal use. Uh, but when we saw the impact uh, almost uniformly, all of our patients, almost all of our doctors who were also very often skeptics coming into working with our clinics, uh, the experience that they had the profoundly positive impact uh, that it had on people's lives was was just you know truly mind blowing, um, and with psychedelics, you know, with with cannabis, a lot of people came in trying to use cannabis for for physical pain, but very often the benefits they got from cannabis had to do with a lot of the psychological consider considerations, the relaxation, the sleep, all that kind of stuff. But it kind of twigged us uh, to what is probably a much bigger epidemic than most physical health ailments that are going on right now. And that's really, you know, the, the mental health um, crisis. A lot of people refer to it as a crisis, and in many ways it is, but it's just we don't have the infrastructure, we don't have the knowledge, we don't have the vocabulary uh, really to support all levels of mental health, um, whether from the extreme uh, circumstances of, you know, major depression, anxiety, PTSD, to the people who suffer with, you know, the day-to-day -day challenges of life that range from mild anxiety or OCD or anything along those lines. And what we really liked about psychedelics is that 
uh, it was a brand new opportunity. There's so little work being done finding ways to help people uh, with that. And psychedelics represents such a, a, a just a cataclysmic shift in what we can do to treat all sorts of people, improve the quality of their lives by improving their mental health through psychedelics. And, and that's why we jumped at it. You know, cannabis, you know, is everywhere in society. You know, Ann and I are, are right now in Los Angeles and you can't walk down the street without smelling somebody smoking a joint or, you know, being near a dispensary. Um, psychedelics, you know, have a different perception in society due to the war on drugs and Timothy Leary and, and Terrence McKenna. But there's a lot of research that has been done, legitimate clinical research that has been done, much more so than in cannabis. It, can you talk a little bit about the research that's out there so that people understand that, you know, that there is, there is real science behind what you guys are thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. And, and and that's one of the more interesting things is that people understand cannabis, people are familiar with cannabis, but people fail to realize that in many levels, cannabis hasn't been studied nearly as deeply as as the classic psychedelics have been studied. And and that's, those studies started. Uh, what's really interesting, too, is that most psychedelics, at least in, in the Western world, were only introduced to society in the 1950s and 1960s. You can go back and read the first articles talking about the use of psychedelics in, in Western society and Time magazine and all that kind of stuff, which is fascinating. Uh, and, you know, the, the people who first introduced them, you know, and, and most people who have used psychedelics, either for recreational or, or therapeutic purposes, find them to be profoundly life-changing in their experience. And so it's not surprising that uh, the initial adopters became very, very vocal and avid researchers and well and did as well and did a lot of researchers in, in the 50s and 60s looking at psychedelics to treat any number of things from basic mental health issues like depression to uh, addiction to all sorts of things uh, very early on. And they were done in, in very rigorous environments with leading academic institutions uh, pursuing these studies. Studies. Um, and given the flexibility and freedom that they had to pursue these studies in the 50s and 60s, you got access to great clinical data. Now, some of that clinical data may not stand up to modern uh, standards that we use these days, but as compared to what could be done with cannabis, which has been scheduled and prohibited and untouchable uh, for significantly longer than psychedelics, the, the amount of work and the quality of research that was done, you know, in 50s and 60s and ongoing uh, on a much smaller scale until, you know, the last 10 years where uh, the emergence of the studies through John Hop Johns Hopkins University and New York, New York University as well, uh, it continued on uh, and uh, the quality of research is just amazing. Let's take it from science to public perception, because I do think they are, you know, it seems like the science is almost ahead of the public perception, um, which sure. is interesting. I almost think it's opposite in cannabis, but it seems like psychedelics are having this moment, um, you know, from Michael Pollan's book, um, How to Change Your Mind, to Ayelet Waldman's book, A Really Good Day. Um, it's, it's taking what was seemingly taboo, you know, and kind of putting it front and center for everyone. Are, are you seeing, does that ring true to you that it's having this, this moment? Absolutely. Uh, it is certainly having a moment. You know, I, I, the way I see it is that I think cannabis broke down the walls in many ways. And, um, 
what cannabis has, I think, shown much of the Western world and expanding globally now is that uh, there's access to medicines that are much more natural, that are much more self-empowering than conventional pharmaceuticals. And I think that's really attracted a lot of people to cannabis and ultimately psychedelics. But what's interesting to me about psychedelics right now is that, um, you know, I hate to draw this comparison, but uh, in 2016, when Donald Trump was elected, there are a lot of people saying that the polls were inaccurate because there are a lot of people who wouldn't admit to wanting to support Trump. Uh, but when it came to going to the actual polling booth, they supported Trump and he ended up winning an election. And I think, you know, based on my experience and the people I talked to, admittedly, which is in a, a more limited metropolitan cosmopolitan environment, uh, I think the use of psychedelics, LSD, psilocybin is actually much more prevalent than most people are willing to admit to. It's okay to be openly talking about cannabis these days and it's progressively becoming more okay to talk about use of psychedelics uh, for recreational or therapeutic purposes. But everyone I speak to uh, seems to have dabbled or continues to dabble with psychedelics uh, at this point. And now again, like I, it's a self-selected audience. So I'm speaking to people who are probably predisposed to it, but I'm surprised by just how prevalent the use of uh, psilocybin in particular uh, is these days. Um, so it is having a moment, but I think the moment is reflected, reflective of, you know, actually the truth of society as opposed to some massive shift, that, shift that's happened specifically with respect to psychedelics over the last year. We are recording this on July 24th, and over the last couple of weeks and months, we've seen cities like um, Denver, Oakland, Oakland, California, Portland, Oregon, decriminalize psilocybin. And, and, and Oakland went even further. They de decriminalized what they call plant medicine. Are the, are the public policy steps that the cannabis industry took, which was first moving towards decriminalization, um, then towards, you know, you know, medical use, and then eventually towards uh, adult use, the same playbook that the the psychedelic community is following i think so i mean that's that's what we're seeing we we don't as a business get involved in the advocacy side of things certainly will be and are involved in lobbying as appropriate to move forward with smart policy but you know politics and policy are not always aligned and you know i think i think what you're seeing with the decriminalization movement of of psychedelics uh, or psilocybin in particular is is reflective of the path that cannabis took and it's also reflective of the fact that a many of the people who are behind the the cannabis legalization movement are, are now turning their sights uh towards psychedelics but they also realize that it takes a long time for attitudes and societies uh, attitudes in society to shift uh, and so doing a sort of staged tempered approach of going from decriminalization uh, where there's no level of sanctioning uh, in a positive way from uh, the government or, or regulatory authorities onwards to a more more regulatorily involved approach that involves production and, and, and controlled distribution. Uh, I think that's the way it's got to go uh, to give people time to catch up. I, I think people are still trying to catch up to the whole the whole experience with cannabis and, and for psychedelics to follow on immediately thereafter. It's not even immediately thereafter. The shift with respect to cannabis is still happening to this day. Um, you know, and, and with psychedelics coming down the path, it, I think it makes it easier for psychedelics because people have turned their mind to the question of maybe the war on drugs uh, and the propaganda and rhetoric that was used in that was 
largely misleading and a lot of things that were uh, covered by that effort um, warrant revisiting. Uh, and so I think the psychedelic movement uh, is probably going to be adopted much faster, but it is also a different class of drugs. And I, I do think it warrants prudence in approaching this uh, to make sure that we're not opening up a, a can of worms that we can't necessarily close. Yeah, these are not, these are not toys. You know, you, you don't, you, you know, they, they are, they are, I mean, you can have a good time when doing a psychedelic, but from a, a therapeutic perspective, it can be an unbelievably psychically painful experience. Um, the politics of, of psychedelics is really interesting because you're, you're seeing organizations like MAPS, and we'll, we'll put a link to them in our show notes, led by Rick Doblin, which is considered you know, a, a very left of center organization. And then you see Rebecca Mercer and her father and family who are about as right wing as you can possibly get. And, um, and, and uh, Thiel, what's, uh, Peter Thiel, who are, who are very big proponents of the clinical use of Wait, psychedelics. The Mercers are pro? The Mercers are pro, Peter oh. Thiel is pro. You're seeing left and right who understand that this is a mental health issue um, and that public policy needs to address this. Um, you know, can you talk, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about the way you guys are going to 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 bring psychedelics to the public, but can you talk a little bit about how you plan on actually you know, either building clinics or doing research, talk, talk in more depth about that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our experience with cannabis and, uh, and establishing Canadian cannabis clinics has actually deeply informed our direction uh, with field trip, as well as our experience in Aurora cannabis. And, and one of the big differentiators that uh, really separated us out in, in the Canadian cannabis experience through our clinics uh, was that we took a very prudent uh medicine science based science first approach to prescribing uh, cannabis whereas there's a lot of expectation in Canada that the Canadian medical market would look a lot like what happened in, in states like California and Colorado where you could find a doctor pay them some sum of money and they'd give you a recommendation or authorization in Canada the medical community was very prudent um, and so we invested heavily in, in, in providing thoughtful and high-quality patient care when it came to cannabis medicine, which in many instances meant not prescribing and not giving authorizations to patients because it wasn't uh, medically appropriate or medically justified. And, and that's the same approach we're going to bring to psychedelics, which is, uh, you know, we're going to be data-driven, we're going to be science-driven, we're going to make sure that uh, when patients are considered for psychedelics in our clinic, uh, they they present with the right symptoms that they've you know you'll probably see that psychedelics will only be considered as a second or third line agent, which means you'll have to have tried conventional therapies for depression for anxiety before any of our you know physicians or psychotherapists will consider um, using psychedelics. Just given straight up prudence. I mean, it's good, good practice. There's a lot of unknown still about the long-term uh, effects of using psychedelics for therapeutic purposes or recreational purposes. And, and we don't want to be making mistakes with people's lives. Uh, and the, the thing that really uh, was important in all of that when we set up Canadian cannabis clinics was that prudence was actually what 
accelerated our our slowness our slow pace uh, in some respects our conservativeness is actually what accelerated the adoption in the medical community because doctors who did not feel comfortable prescribing turned around and saw that there were very thoughtful doctors prescribing cannabis thoughtfully and then they saw the results with their patients and then they turned their mind to the possibility that this is actually really working and it's not just you know people seeking recreational access to cannabis through a medical system that it was medicine first and the medicine was working. And so that's the approach we're going to take uh, with respect to the clinical rollout uh, of our of our clinics across North America. Um, same, you know, being research driven with Canadian cannabis clinics, we weren't doing the, the basic science on, on the cannabis plant, but uh, you know, through Aurora, uh, we acquired a, a company called Anandia Labs, which was, you know, Jonathan Page, uh, the chief science officer there, was the first person who who sequenced the the cannabis plant genome. Uh, mm. And so, uh, even though we weren't directly involved in that through Canadian Cannabis Clinics, by seeing what the impact of that was through Aurora, you know, we're also investing in that that basic science into psychedelics. You know, starting with psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, we're going to be investigating, you know, best cultivation techniques, establishing. I mean, I mean, this is how nascent, in some ways, the the psychedelics industry is. But there's not even the methods uh, and standards to do proper analysis on on psilocybin mushrooms. The the standards for psilocybin and psilocin, which is actually the active molecule that works on your brain to deliver the psychedelic experience, they've been established. But all the other alkaloids and potential psychedelic molecules that exist in psilocybin mushrooms, uh, the proper method that's an analysis haven't been established yet. So that level of, you know, basic research needs to be done. So we'll be doing that. Are you going to, are you going to sequence, are you going to have the same guys who sequenced the cannabis um, genome do that for psilocybin? As far as I know, the, the genome for psilocy the psilocybin mushroom, or I guess cubensis, because uh, there are over 200 psilocybin producing mushrooms out there or something like that um, has already been sequenced. So we won't be doing that work. And as far as I know, uh, John Page at Anandia is still quite busy focusing on on all the exciting research to be done on cannabis. Uh, but we'll be doing a lot of the same work, which is trying to identify any novel molecules that haven't been studied, you know, in cannabis. I forget what the number is now, but there's something like 100 plus cannabinoids that have been identified. And our hypothesis uh, broadly is what we saw with the cannabis industry, which is the entourage effect of cannabis, which is to say the interaction of all the cannabinoids delivers a better therapeutic effect than a single molecule like THC or CBD. And our hypothesis and some of our research is going to focus on testing that as well with respect to psilocybin. You know, with uh, Compass Pathways, you see their research is focused on a synthetic um, psilocybin molecule. So it's just that one molecule that ignores everything else that may be in the psilocybin producing mushrooms that may have therapeutic value. Uh, and so our work is going to be focused on trying to identify those other molecules of value and seeing if it's that milieu, that interaction, that entourage effect uh, in psilocybin mushrooms that delivers part of the therapeutic experience. Ronan, you talked about the work you're doing in North America. Um, can you talk about some of uh, the work you guys are doing in Jamaica? Uh, Jamaica is uh, one of the few um, countries where psilocybin mushrooms are not uh, strictly prohibited. Uh, and again, our policy is only to do things in a, in a federally legal environment. And and so even though I guess it falls into, it's not a gray zone, it, it's, it's a no zone in terms of uh, the regulation in Jamaica. We've been actively 
in dialogue with uh, the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Agriculture uh, to make sure what we're doing has the blessing and support of, of the government. Uh, you know, we're, we're doing it in, in, in conjunction with academic institutions in Jamaica as well. Again, making sure that what we're doing uh, is a of top quality, has the blessing of the applicable regulatory authorities, so we're not doing anything offside. And ultimately, you know, our view is to be able to have the first ever legally sanctioned uh, cultivation uh, psilocybin mushroom cultivation facility in the world. Now, it's a stepping, it's a it's a process, it's a stepping stone. So we're starting with just pure focus on research and not cultivation for distribution or sale. Um, but I think once we establish the proper protocols, uh, we work with the government to understand that, you know, help them understand that we're taking the right approach to, to this, that we're doing it thoughtfully. Uh, we'll see, you know, opportunities open up to advance the, the work we're doing in Jamaica further. So jumping back to the U.S., there's um, more than 46 million people suffer from some kind of mental illness, which is one in five Americans, which is mind boggling. Uh, and there, there really is almost no research on, on new therapeutics being done by the pharmaceutical industry. Um, what are you guys doing here specifically in the U.S. to address that? Sure. So um People often ask, like, what can you do legally in, in North America to support psychedelics or to be actively involved in a legal uh, psychedelic uh, business? And, and the answer is right now, what we're doing uh, is twofold to support that. One is to establish the clinical infrastructure to support the current trials that are going on and the future clinical trials that are happening. So, you know, that means the work being done by Compass Pathways for psilocybin and um, treatment-resistant depression. That includes the work being done by USONA, uh, who's looking at psilocybin for major depressive um, uh, major depression. And, um, and the challenge is, as with almost all clinical studies, uh, is finding the right patients to, to fit the, the protocols of the study uh, and actually finding the physical infrastructure uh, to support the studies. Unlike um, traditional pharmaceuticals where you give a person a molecule or a pill or whatever the, the treatment is, and then you monitor them, most psychedelic therapies are actually psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, which means it's not just take one pill and, and the results will happen. There's a lot of work to be done in conjunction with the actual ingestion of the molecule uh, to deliver the fact that that's time-intensive, that's space-intensive. Uh, and so that infrastructure to support the clinical trials doesn't exist very well right now. Um, and so the things we'll be doing to support the work to help you know, Americans, Canadians, anybody worldwide in terms of treating mental health issue as a starting point is built the infrastructure so these clinical trials can happen quickly and efficiently uh, and have, you know, the most robust number of people get into it so the evidence is as strong as possible, you know, whether hopefully supportive uh, that this therapy these therapies work, um, but even if not, that's okay. You know, we want we want to establish the evidence. So we'll be building that clinical infrastructure to support the existing trials, and we're going to be initiating our own clinical trials uh, as well, uh, exploring the therapeutic applications uh, of of psychedelics. And again, building the clinical infrastructure to support that um, is going is is a stepping stone to to that piece as well. Let, let's pivot and talk the business of this stuff for a moment. Um, you know, the, the drug, the big pharmaceutical drug companies make drugs, make, make medicine, call them drugs, that are really designed to be consistently taken, right? If you are 
on uh, depressed, you're going to take a benzodiazepine for forever. Um, but the experience with psychedelics from the research that's been done at NYU and Johns Hopkins here in LA at UCLA and, and other institutions show that one, two, maybe three guided sessions can significantly relieve, you know, depression, anxiety, PTSD, even have massive, yeah, massive impact on addiction. Um, What's the business model that you guys are pursuing? Because you're not going to get somebody, you know, taking psilocybin, you know, a hero dose, which is a big dose, that breakthrough dose every day. How are you guys going to make money? Sure. Um, You know, our business model and the approach we're taking is to be very broad based. So as a business, we can be making money across the entire industry, whether that's through you know, novel technologies and, and IP, whether that's through production uh, and distribution and, and cultivation, whether that's through providing clinical care, uh, all of these pieces will, uh, you know, drive revenue at, at some point in, in our business model. Um, you know, the most people right now think that the biggest opportunity from a money-making perspective in, in psychedelics is uh, in building the clinical infrastructure. And, and I'm inclined to agree because the nature of this treatment, um, these treatments, is it's not supported by the infrastructure that exists right now. There are few doctors, uh, you know, our first-line uh, medical providers who have the capacity to have someone come in and whether it's a hero dose or a moderate dose or, you know, even a small dose of most psychedelics, it's it's a multiple hour experience. Uh, and certainly you don't want to dose people and then send them out on the street or potentially drive home. So you have to build the infrastructure. We can provide care to these people, um, to all people. Um, uh, so they can have the proper experience and, and that psychotherapy clinics or psychotherapists don't have the infrastructure to support a large population base and, and medical clinics don't have the infrastructure or the revenue models to support that as well. So the opportunity is really to establish best in, best in class practices and protocols for delivering uh, psych, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Uh, and, and that's where we're going to be starting. And, and we kind of joke, you know, it's it you touched on something important um, that unlike traditional pharmaceuticals where the goal of, you know, too many pharmaceutical companies is to keep people on their drugs so they can make money. You know, our kind of mission is to put ourselves out of business. Uh, <laughs> if we can actually achieve, you know, the, the improvements in mental health care that we hope to, uh, you know, we kind of want to put ourselves out of business, but the irony is, and this is one of the, I think truly amazing things about psychedelics is that I don't think that we'll ever put ourselves out of business, even if we cure depression, even if we cure, you know, PTSD or any other of the mental health conditions that we're talking about, because the other application of, um, uh, of psychedelics is, is an optimization and enhancement. You know, I think, uh, I think we kind of co-opted a term from Michael Pollan who said, heal the sick and better the well. Uh, and it's just the nature of our medical system that we have to start by focusing on healing the sick, the people who have a disease state, uh, depression, anxiety, and all that kind of stuff. But we certainly see a, an opportunity with psychedelics to go from disease state to focusing on improving people's lives. You know, so many people these days go to the gym and are focused on improving their fit, physical fitness, and and psychedelics provide an incredible platform uh, for improving mental fitness as well. And so, you know, I think the opportunities, I think the potential for the industry, 
even if people aren't taking psychedelics every single day is still massive. But there's also even the opportunity of looking at up, um, working with psychedelics on microdosing, so sub-perceptual levels that improve mood, improve creativity, all that kind of stuff as well. So the opportunities uh, working with clin- uh, the classical psychedelics is, are, are massive and um, there's going to be no, short of, uh, you no just- shortage of revenue. Shay, our producer, just asked us, "Can you ask about microdosing?" So you you just you you made Shay's day, Ronan. Um, um, Good stuff. You know, you said something really well. You said a lot of really interesting things. But one of the things that you talked about early on was you know the the Canadian model of of prescribing um, cannabis medically and how you guys built clinics there and work with doctors to educate them on the the medical value of cannabis. You know, doctors you know, especially, you know, medical doctors, whether they be regular, like doctors trying to heal your body or psychiatrists and psychologists are focused on evidence-based research so that they can make determinations on how to prescribe and what to do. You know, the research that you're going to be doing is, is, is clinical, but how are you going to go then about and educate the medical community other than by working with KCSA, in full disclosure, you are happily a client of ours. Um, but how are you going to, or how are we going to educate the medical community as to the research that's being done um, on the efficacy, dosing, all of that when it comes to psychedelics? Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the big challenges. And, and I think some of the work is being done for us already, which is raising awareness of the uh, therapeutic application of psychedelics, I think, is going to drive uh, a very parallel experience that we saw in cannabis, which is uh, it was patient driven. You know, unlike most medications, which are doctor driven, you go to the doctor because you have an ailment, the doctor prescribes something. People were going to their doctor saying, I have something, but I don't want tr- to try traditional pharmaceuticals. I want to try cannabis for this use. And most most physicians um we're not comfortable with cannabis for many reasons is because of the stigma it's because dosing is imprecise because you know you don't exactly know the the pharmacokinetics of what's going on and why it's making people better and all that kind of stuff and i think you're going to see the same thing happen with psychedelics which is when people see uh, you know the millions of people uh, who are currently on antidepressants and SSRIs and, and not enjoying that experience because it's very dulling and it's it's hard to maintain adherence, uh, start to understand the potential of psychedelics to provide improvements, they're going to start demanding it from their doctors. And their doctors are there going to be caught flat-footed like they were with cannabis and and actively seek out information and education. And the truth is, is when, when we went to educate doctors um, on cannabis, we were just very honest, which is to say, we don't know very much about cannabis and where it's effective and where it's not. What we do know is that it may be effective in these areas and and particularly with respect to pain management. You know, the, the kind of conversation was cannabis may work. It, it may not work. It seems to work, but there's almost zero harm associated with the use of cannabis on an ongoing basis. Uh, when you compare that to opioids, where we know they work for a little while and stop working after a little while and the the risk associated with it is risk of death or lifelong addiction, you know, maybe starting with cannabis as, as, as a first line agent or a second line agent, but very early on is, is something that should be considered. And you probably, you know, 
independent physician uh, don't have the knowledge or requisite experience uh, to support this, but but we do. So let us help you. Let us help your patients uh, explore this opportunity. And, and that's exactly the playbook we're gonna we're gonna bring to psychedelics, which is let let people make the decisions, let them speak to their doctors, and then we'll provide their doctors and their medical professionals uh, with as much information as we can um, and, and provide them with the support uh, to either work with us or to refer their patients to us so we can support their patients and, and just focus on that individual aspect of care. We don't want to compete with doctors, with Canadian cannabis clinics. We don't want to compete with doctors in terms of primary care. We want to only provide cannabis-related medicine, and, and that's what we'll do here as well, which is we're not trying to replace the you know, the primary physician, the primary care provider, we're trying to support them by focusing on an area they probably are going to be naturally uncomfortable with uh, and provide it in a very careful, thoughtful, patient-driven um, a manner of doing so. Do you think that um, psychedelics, the, the, the path that it's on now, is a better path in terms of of research and education for the for patients versus cannabis, and and I guess what I mean by this is, um, cannabis has been ascribed some miraculous healing properties, of which a lot of us are are also dubious. There's not you know there's not a body of research, um, you know I think Curaleaf is an example of kind of you know getting slapped by the FDA for saying things that are not yet proven. Um, you know, are you are you very mindful of that, or you know, is that something that you're just gonna you're gonna follow the science? No, no, I, we're certainly mindful of um, not replicating some of the mistakes that were made uh, with medical cannabis. But I, it's also I, I don't identify it as much of a concern. I think <laughs> part of the reason that there's so much misinformation around medical cannabis is because it operated in the black market or a gray market for such a long time and, and research wasn't permitted. Um, and then, you know, the regulations were very slow to catch up uh, and, and people operated like it was the wild west. And so I think just based on what we saw with cannabis, um, regulators as well as people in the industry are going to be much more thoughtful to make sure uh, that what's done with psychedelics is is going to be more prudently um, brought forward more thoughtfully and and it also it also helps that the research I mean the evidence for psychedelics is not anecdotal it's it's clinical data dra driven from you know the 1950s 60s 70s and and now more recently so it's coming with it's coming from science first as opposed to anecdotal patient driven information first so I, I I mean we're mindful of it certainly people on our advisory board and our team are are very concerned that you'll see a lot of the misinformation that happened with cannabis occur in psychedelics but my personal belief is that the risk is not the same. Certainly there's a risk and we have to be vigilant to make sure that information stays top quality and people are properly informed. But just based on experience through cannabis and, and where it's coming from, I think it's less likely to go that direction. I think Michael Pollan, you know, and his place in society has, has done a tremendous amount over the last two years, and, and Joe Rogan as well, to, to, to really bring the conversation around these molecules into the mainstream. But there's, there's, there's this competing philosophy, right? You guys are, are pushing the concept of clinical, medical application. 
but there are a lot of advocates out there who are really pushing for adult use. Do you see these as coincident or competing uh, agendas? Uh, no, I, I, I see them as coincident agendas. I think everybody is pushing this agenda because they see a lot of good uh, that can come from it. Um, you know, our perspective is, I guess, both philosophically and, and business driven, which is um, the right way to do this is thoughtfully. Um, the right way to do this is with evidence. Um to understand the applications of it. And if that means you start uh, with a limited program that's medically focused for certain people and see A, that it is actually as effective as we believe it is, but B, that the long-term risks around harm uh, are as low as we believe it to be, then it makes sense to go to the next step of making it more generally accessible. But you certainly don't want to you know, create a scenario where people are, are consuming it on a daily basis without understanding uh, whether there's long-term harm. I mean, that's one of the big challenges and why the FDA is responding so quickly to CBD, which is, it's often referred to as a panacea, but no one really knows what the long-term effects of consuming CBD are. Uh, and, you know, it, it it's, it's a challenge. Um, and so uh, people who want to see it as adult use, psychedelics as adult use, I, I, you know, I think I think it's it's great. I just don't want to put the cart before the horse because the worst thing that can happen is that we see some sort of repeat of what happened with the '70s, which is there's a, a great scare uh, and it gets shut down, and the potential value uh, that could be derived in a more controlled environment uh, gets lost because people try to to move too quickly and, and make it universally acceptable. Timothy Leary did both a great good and a great ill to the to the psychedelic movement. I mean, he brought it into the mainstream with the Grateful Dead, but, you know, he scared the shit out of a lot of people. You, you, you know, the, the, the hippies, you know, tripping and, and, you know, and then the history of, of, of Richard Nixon lumping in psychedelics with cannabis as a vehicle to target both the hippies, the yippies, the African-Americans and other minority communities. Um, you know, it, it just set back this research that you were describing from the, the 50s and the 60s where, you know, hundreds and thousands of people went through trials at NYU and at, 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 at um, Johns Hopkins. Um, and I lost my train of thought. I completely lost my train of thought. But um, – yeah, but I think your point is like we don't we don't want to like uh, we don't want to repeat history, right? You know, yeah. people who don't study history are doomed to repeat it, and so uh, our approach is let's do it thoughtfully uh, from a business perspective. We don't want to maximize the likelihood of of some sort of terrible liability experience financially or for any individual who may have a, a negative you know physical experience or or whatever the case may be. So we want to do it you know in a in a thoughtful manner, but. Certainly, if the evidence shows that there's no long-term risk of harm or minimal risk of harm, uh, the people on our side would be, I think, more than enthusiastic supporters of a, an adult use movement. But we just got to make sure we know what we're saying when before we actually advocate for that. You guys are a fund, right? How, how big are you? How much did you raise? How are you going to deploy the capital? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so 
we got described as a venture fund and and depending on who you talk to it's accurate or inaccurate truth is is our focus is actually using our investment to build our own operations as a starting point uh, really we're taking the playbook from the big cannabis companies like canopy growth like aurora like tilray uh, who focused on building their own operations but were also extremely active in making strategic investments uh, where they saw synergies and, and that's the model we're approaching so we're not we're not purely a fund that's going to invest in third parties uh, most of our investment will go into our, our own operations with supporting investments as necessary where we the opportunity. Ronan, can we ask what your relationship is with plant-based medicine? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, this same question came up with respect to cannabis, which it would be, I think, disingenuous for me to say that I've never uh, experimented uh, with you know, some of the psychedelics. Uh, I'm not uh, very experienced, but I think it's important to know what you're dealing with before you choose to uh, to build a business around it and potentially open it up to thousands or millions of people. Um, uh, and I think, you know, my, my attitude is that it, it certainly serves a place in society and that there's a lot of benefits that can come from the very thoughtful and prudent use of psychedelics to either improve mental health or expand one's one's mind. But uh, I am certainly not uh, an experienced, very experienced users with them. You know, part of the, the what we have done here on the podcast is trying to demystify some of the, the bullshit in the cannabis industry. And there is a lot of bullshit associated with the psychedelics community, you know, that you can have you know, one bad trip and go insane. The research isn't there, but there are risks associated with using any of these molecules. So, you know, the the benefits are are replete and we'll we'll link to some of the research studies out there. You know, I I was talking to Ann about the the research that was done on Hopkins, on alcoholics and on, on smoking cessation that, you know, six months after a guided experience, 80% of people had, had stopped smoking and two years later we were at 60 percent people who had stopped smoking but there are risks can you talk just a a wee bit about that because i don't want people to come away from this conversation wanting to run out and 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 and, and, that that's not how it works but yeah um but you know but go out and try and try lsd or try psilocybin in you know a willy-nilly willy-nilly fashion (laughs) <laughs> yeah, um, certainly. Uh, you know, it, I think it's the wrong conversation is to look at, you know, the risk of psychedelics and isolations. There's there's risk associated with all molecules that we're using for medical purposes. And, and that is certainly true about psychedelics. You know, the question then becomes one of relative risks. And unlike pharmaceuticals that get rigorously tested for for their risk profile it's it's the information around the risks for long-term use of psychedelics isn't there as much simply because there was a period of study and then it got stopped and and that kind of level of rigor we expect from pharmaceuticals these days uh, i think the work's starting to be done again but it's just not quite as clear that being said what we do know is that the relative risks of using psychedelics are, are quite low, that there seems, you know, with psilocybin and LSD, uh, there seems to be no lethal overdose, uh, much like cannabis. You, you couldn't most likely kill yourself no matter how large the dose is. What you could have, uh, you know, there's a lot of therapists out there and, and you know, um, very academic ones who say there's no such thing as a bad trip. Uh, there's only a hard trip. 
which means that it's going to be challenging, but it, we haven't gone d deep into the conversation about why psychedelics from a mental health perspective achieve what they can, um, but essentially they force you to confront a lot of the demons that may exist in your psyche on, on some levels. Uh, so any of those confrontations can lead to growth in the right circumstance and, and improvements in mental health. Uh, but it, you know, very often in what's considered a hardship, you'd want medical professionals to be there in association with it. Um, so the, the point I'm trying to make is that the risks seem to be low. Uh, they're not zero. Uh, the risks relative in terms of like actual death are low. It seems like, you know, people talk about flashbacks, LSD flash flashbacks and the evidence seems to suggest that that's not really the case that if you do have a hard trip you could experience in the future post-traumatic stress symptoms as if it happened in real life which is certainly a possibility but it's not specifically a flashback in 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 the sort of conventional sense that in, instills fear in people so it, it they're not without risk um you know but uh overall done properly in a prudent environment with a proper care, those risks are low. Uh, and the benefits, you know, when it comes to any medicine, the, the real question is, do, do the benefits outweigh the risk? And all evidence right now seems to point to, with psychedelics, seems to point to, yes, the, the, the potential benefits far outweigh the risks, especially when done prudently in a proper environment. And, and the FDA has recognized that, and it, they've designated things like MDMA or ecstasy with breakthrough um, potential. Same thing with psilocybin. You know, MDMA has been de designated that way for the treatment of PTSD, and with literally millions of Americans who have, over the last 20 years, served you know in combat zones, the need for a new therapy to to treat that is is never been higher. You know, they 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 approved the FDA approved ketamine as a vehicle. Uh, or a, a molecule to treat depression, and it was the first new drug to treat depression um, approved by the FDA in something like 20, 25 years. You, you know, so you are in the right, you are you are in the right place at the right time. Um, and you know, we've got one more question, which I'll let let Anne ask. But we want you back to talk more about the medicine here because you know we didn't get into the, you know, what, what can be treated and, and the data on efficacy. And, and, and we definitely want to get into that, but we've taken up about almost an hour of your time and we want to be respectful. So our last question, um, you know, there's lots of corners of the internet where, where this is being written about, where psychedelics are being written about, but I have yet to see, you know, the mainstream media, which is a term I hate, but I don't have another term for it. Um, <laughs> it's all fake news. It's all fake news. I have yet to really grasp on. I mean, there's cannabis beat reporters at every major publication now. There is not a psychedelics beat reporter. So um, we just got to get them to trip. My law. No. Uh, come on. I got to do at least one bad dad joke. Uh, I haven't done one joke yet. The jokes are supposed to be funny, though, right? Oh. Not, not, not dad joke. <laughs> not dad. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. So our question is, um, what's the if you were to open up the Wall Street Journal um, or the Globe and Mail tomorrow, what would you like to see? What story do you want to see on the front page about this new industry? Yeah, I, I think I think the the story I'd like to see is really talking about how much more mainstream 
this really is and how much more advanced the science really is than than people expect. Uh, you know, those that's really it. It's like the, the truth, uh, unlike with cannabis, when it comes to psychedelics, the truth really quite quite a bit is out there. Uh, people just need to open their minds to it. And, and I'll confess, you know, uh, when we started with the cannabis business, it was no problem getting reporters to talk to us and write stories about us. Uh, and I thought those same reporters would jump on psychedelics like in a heartbeat because it seems way more shocking and appalling, but um, not appalling, but shocking uh, for from a reporter's perspective and, and something that's going to drive a lot of interest and, and discourse. And, and the response was kind of muted. You know, they thought it was way too fringe at first. Uh, and now a lot of them, you know, as with almost everybody I know in the cannabis industry, are turning their heads to it and saying like, oh, there's something really exciting here. And, and truth be told, part of the reason that I think uh, there's a cannabis beat reporter everywhere is because there's a lot of money mm-hmm. being made and to be made in cannabis. And I don't think people have turned their heads to or, or immediately see the opportunity of where there's money to be made in psychedelics, just given that the entirely illegal regulatory environment that we operate in now. Uh, But I think with Oakland, with Denver, with um, uh, Oregon uh, next year, uh, that's very quickly going to change. And I'm sure, you know, we're, we're fortunate then I think we're the first out of the gate trying to do uh, what we're doing, um, but it's not going to be long before people are, are next in line doing this as well. So as soon as that starts happening, reporters are going to be lining up to tell this story as well. I'm glad you hired a really good PR firm out of New York who knows how to communicate with these reporters. Absolutely. The quality of the humor coming out of that firm, though, I'm not so sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God you don't get paid oh, for that. Wow, man. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time with us. Um, I have been looking forward to this literally now for months um, to to talk with you. And I'm looking forward to more conversations about this um, in the the coming months, um, especially when we have really interesting news to announce with you. Just to remind um, the audience, we've been speaking with Ronan Levy, co-founder of Field Trip Ventures. Um, To find out more about them, you can go to fieldtrip.com dot ventures um ronan thank you so much man thank you both for having me it's been a pleasure chatting with you i love having these conversations and and helping to spread the word and understanding about the potential of psychedelics is is something i'm passionate about so having this opportunity and this platform to do so is is greatly appreciated Again, a huge thanks to Ronan Levy, co-founder of Field Trip Ventures. Um, I hope you got as much out of listening to that as Ann and I did out of talking with him. And as I said, full disclosure, KCSA is now the the PR firm for Field Trip. Um, as always, if you want to chat with us, you can find us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. Why they are different handles, I will never understand, but it is what it is. Um, you can drop us an email at the Green Rush, or no, it's not the Green Rush. It's at greenrush at kcsa.com. We are always, always looking for your feedback, um, guest ideas. Let us know what you thought about this episode. Let us know what you have. turn, so yes. we want to hear from you. Yes. Um, also, I'm still waiting for more hate mail, as per usual. Please don't forget to subscribe to The Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. It really helps. Um, and go out and share this. These, these interviews, these conversations with the leaders in these industries 
are not just for us and for you, and I mean you specifically, it's for everybody. You know, the goal here is to have conversations that have an impact, not only on the businesses of the people that we're talking to, but on society writ large. Um, you know, Anne and I really believe in the work that we are doing. Uh, and I know this sounds a little treachy and, and preachy, but it's important. You know, these conversations about the, the normalization of cannabis and now the normalization of psychedelics from a medical perspective are really, really important. So that's one take, Shay. One take.